You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hello, all of you fantastic listeners. I'm Erica. And I'm Billy. And we're the hosts of Martinis in the Macabre. A comedy podcast discussing morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem. No, you don't understand. I was going to try and eat a little bit of her. I was going to hit Just her. a nibble. Do you like true crime? She killed him and cooked him. Do you wonder about morbid history? What are you doing with that hammer? <laughs> Do you laugh at inappropriate topics? Open know. mouth, cut off top of head, and insert both feet and hands. <laughs> <laughs> then we cordially invite you to our cocktail hour, so you too can build up a tolerance for booze and body bags. You got a body in these? Well, it's not a fried anus, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps by searching Martinis and the Macabre. And then sit back and laugh at the worst the world has to offer. Cheers! Hi, I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts, and this is Fresh Hell. And you just heard the promo for Martinis and Murder. They are another great podcast that we've done a promo swap with because we think our listeners might like them and their listeners might like us. Yeah, I think you should definitely check them out. Before we start, we would really love to give a huge shout out to one of our YouTube listeners named Blake. Thank you so much for all your kind comments and your support. It really made our day. Yes, we really, truly do appreciate it. We really do. But now we are going to dive immediately into today's story. Johanna, why don't you tell our listeners what we're going to be talking about today? So in past episodes, we talked about Queen Victoria and her son, King Edward VII. I mean, who could forget the sex chair from episode 29? (laughs) He was very popular in our closed Facebook group. Yes, the sex chair. (laughs) (laughs) But so far, we haven't talked about Austrian emperors other than mentioning them in passing. So I thought it's time that we talk a little bit about the Austrian noble family, the Habsburger. And their prominent foreheads and jawlines. So yeah, I'm actually really excited for this one. And if you listen to our episode about the Hinterkaifeck and the Hinterkaifeckers, <laughs> then you might have already guessed Habsburger refers to members of the Habsburg family. Yes, it's just like putting an S at the end of family names in English. Yeah, I didn't know that until we did this. See? Learning new things all the time. I'm actually happy that you are on board with this, that we we do this episode, because I'm really into this kind of stuff. Oh, it's going to be great. Now, we all know that we do concentrate on the murderous, mysterious and macabre parts of history. So today and next week, we will be talking about the three big tragedies that hit the Habsburg family in the late 19th and early 20th century. There is another famous murder in the Habsburg family that took place in 1308, when Johann Parisida killed his uncle, King Albrecht I. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting story. He killed Albrecht with a sword, uh, allegedly splitting his head in half, like Kill Bill Volume 1 style. It was a Volume 2. Well, Albrecht's wife and his entourage were just had to watch in horror. I can't even imagine. And so from then on, he was given the last name Parasita, which means, of course, meaning to kill a parent or a similarly close relative, which is parasite. But for now, we're going to focus on the big three tragedies that hit Emperor Franz Josef I in his lifetime. And guess what? (laughs) No matter how many angry comments you leave on YouTube telling us to, quote, get the fuck on with the fucking story, this is not how we roll. (laughs) Oh, God, did someone say that? Yeah, but uh, YouTube didn't allow it to post. It was apparently too vulgar. So vulgar. Good day, sir. I said good day. (laughs) Good day. (laughs) (laughs) We are very thankful, though, for every comment as it helps our channel to grow. So thank you, I guess. Yeah. Seriously, though, if you have been listening to us for a while, you know by now that we do love to give some background info. So I hope you will bear with us. Johanna, I think it's time for an Austrian history lesson. I'm so excited. But first, we do want to give you a quick warning to our listeners. We are going to be discussing uh, suicide in this episode, and we're also going to be touching on eating disorders. So as always, you're going to find links to international suicide prevention hotlines and other helpful mental health information pinned in our Facebook group. Right. So let's do this. 
in 976. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I won't be going back that far. Just know that before the Habsburger, the Babenberger were the first rulers of Austria, or as it was called back then, Osterrichi. They ruled as Markgrafen, and I have absolutely no idea what that would be compared to in English. I mean, a graph is a count, but whatever, forget about it. It's not important. <laughs> but from 976 to 1246, the Babenberger ruled. So honestly, the only reason why I'm telling you this right now is because it gives me a reason to tell you about the Austrian national flag. Annie, do you know how the Austrian flag looks like? It's red, white, red, right? Yes. And I find the story of our state flag, um, it fits right into our podcast. So it is said that Duke Leopold V. Oh, he's the guy that captured my great, 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 great uh, uncle, Richard the Lionhearted, right? Yes, that guy. So Leopold V did participate in the siege of Akon that took place from 1189 to 1191 during the Third Crusade. And it is said that after one of the battles, he was covered in blood from head to toe and his former white clothes were now red. He then took off his sword belt and of course that left a white stripe on his otherwise blood-drenched outfit. It's a legend, but it's kind of macabre and therefore interesting and cool. <laughs> because basically our flag to this day symbolizes blood-covered white clothes. I would never have guessed that. I did not know that. Yeah, that is on topic. But yeah, bloody crusades, man. But that's everything we will be seeing about the Babenberger because we want to talk about the Habsburger. So, in 1246, during the Battle at the Leiter, the last heir of the Babenberger family died. Then in 1278, Rudolf I of Habsburg managed to win over Osterrichi at another battle, the Battle of the Machfeld. And this started the reign of Habsburg family in Austria, and it lasted for 640 years, until the end of World War I in 1918. Now, in these 640 years, there were a lot of famous and infamous Habsburger. I think one you all might know is Marie Antoinette, the wife of King Louis XVI, who lost her life at the guillotine in 1793 during the French Revolution, of course. Yeah, I have a couple of books about her that I keep meaning to read. I just find her fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and she was the daughter of our Empress Maria Theresia, one of 16 children to be exact. <laughs> the Habsburger loved to have many children because they ruled under the premise of Bella Gerand Ali to Felix Austria Nube, which translates to let others wage war, though happy Austria, marry. So basically the original make love, not war philosophy. Exactly. Nice. Uh, yeah, the Austrian emperors were quite successful with their marriage politics and they did marry their children off to places like Burgundy, Bavaria, Italy, Spain, France. And an Austrian princess was married to your buddy Napoleon, wasn't wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. that's right. So after his divorce from his first wife, uh, Josephine de Beauharnais, Napoleon married Marie-Louise of Austria. She was the daughter of our Emperor Franz I. And even though she fucking hated him, I mean, she called him the Antichrist, <laughs> they had a son, Napoleon II, the King of Rome, and he actually died here at age 20 in Vienna in Schönbrunn Castle. By the way, while Napoleon adored his Austrian wife because marrying a real princess, I don't know, gave him the feeling of being accepted in the European noble families, the French hated her. Because right around the time of Napoleon's divorce from Josephine, all his military luck started to fade and he started to suffer many defeats. And while the French called Josephine a lucky charm, they saw Marie-Louise as a jinx. Sorry for digressing. No, I love it. I also love the way women were just always treated as um, objects. Of course we loved it. It's, you know, yeah. It's the best. <laughs> well, who doesn't love being treated like a, you know, rabbit's foot? It's fine. Yeah. I mean, if they would call me the lucky charm, that's okay. But calling me a chinks, that's a whole other story. Exactly. We're okay with taking the credit for the good stuff. Just don't lay the heavy <laughs> shit on us, please. Okay, so yeah, the Habsburger, they loved to marry their children off to all different sorts of European countries, which unfortunately led to, um, well, let's just say they like to keep that bloodline pure. If you marry off your kids to all the different countries, then at one point, everyone is related to each other. So scientists nowadays are pretty certain that incest is in fact responsible for the rather distinct facial features that some of the Habsburgers had, especially in the Spanish line of the family. Really, really big foreheads. I mean, I've got like a five head, but these guys, <laughs> it was like, it was, yeah, very long noses uh, with a 
really pronounced large jawline and very prominent lips. People today pay very good money to get a lip like theirs. We're going to post pictures so you'll know what we're talking about. But finally, marrying close relatives brings us to the center of our story. God, it's another love story that begins with incest. So Emperor Franz Josef I, he too marries a close relative, his cousin to be exact. Franz Josef I was born on August 18th, 1830 in Schönbrunn Castle. I know that's pretty close to you, Johanna. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, it's uh, you pronounce it right. And yes, I live very close to there. I can't wait to visit. I live in one of the very noble districts here in Vienna. As you should. <laughs> <laughs> he was the oldest son of Archduke Franz Karl of Austria and his wife, Princess Sophie Frederica of Bavaria. Archduke Franz Karl was the brother of Emperor Ferdinand I. Okay. I know right now you might be thinking, wait a minute, if Franz Karl was the brother of the emperor, how come his son became emperor? Or maybe you were not thinking this at all. Maybe you were just wondering why you're all listening to me badly pronounce a bunch of German names. <laughs> but in case you were wondering how the nephew of the emperor followed him to the throne, here's what happened. Emperor Ferdinand I was not only showing the typical facial features, he was also believed to have suffered from some pretty severe mental health issues that didn't exactly equip him well to provide the strongest leadership skills. And he unfortunately also suffered from epilepsy. His very friendly, easygoing personality led to his nickname, Ferdinand der Gütige. I would not have guessed that. <laughs> I was going to say Gutige. <laughs> I told you, just think angry, angry. We want angry. <laughs> but he wasn't angry. He was friendly. <laughs> Ferdinand, <clears throat> Ferdinand de Gutige, which means Ferdinand the Benevolent. And another problem that he had, uh, which would be a big problem for a ruler, he was sterile. Now, in 1848, after the March Revolution, Ferdinand I abdicated. And this is Princess Sophie's moment to shine. She was ready because she convinced the entire family that her husband, Franz Karl, should not be emperor, but instead their 18-year-old son, Franz Josef, should be. And that's what happened. And I think Archduke Franz Karl was actually quite okay with that. It doesn't look like he really wanted to be emperor. He preferred to go hunting or go to the theater. Can't blame him. There is actually a lovely story of Archduke Franz Karl and his love for theater. He would often travel to Bad Ischl to hunt there. Bad Ischl is a, a town in Salzkammergut, where the Habsburg family would go to hunt and have their summer vacation. So he would often travel to Bad Ischl and he would be hunting there and Bad Ischl had a little theater and was rather unsuccessful and so the theater was about to close its doors for good. So Franz Karl bought all the tickets for every night that he was on vacation there and would attend the performances with his friends every evening. And before he left to return to Vienna, he paid all the actors the salary for one year. No surprise that he was very beloved in Bad Ischl and I think actually people loved him everywhere he went. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And you really can't fault a man for supporting the arts like that. Yeah. Okay. So 18-year-old Franz Josef is crowned on 2nd of December 1848 without ever being heir to the throne beforehand. And in his first years as emperor, his mother, Sophie, was his strongest support. She was advising him on how to rule the country. And the citizens of Vienna even called her, quote, the only man at court, end quote. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> She was a strong woman, really. Oh, yeah. In 1853, the first minor tragedy hit Franz Josef. One day when he was taking a walk, the Hungarian tailor Janos Libeny tried to stab the emperor with a kitchen knife. And the attempted assassination was thought of by the emperor's adjutant, which is a military officer who is the assistant to a higher-ranked officer. And of course, the emperor is the highest-ranked officer in the whole emperor, so he has a lot of adjutanten. Yeah, so the adjutant, he's like the Habsburger helper. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But I'm... <laughs> yes, yes, he was the Habsburger helper. <laughs> so bad. And there was also a butcher, Josef Ettenreich, who just happened to pass by. And he also fought against the attacker. He was rewarded by becoming a nobleman. Nice. To remember this incident, the emperor had the Votivkirche built. It's a church in the first district just around the corner from the university. And Votiv comes from the Latin word votum, which is a, like a wow or a promise to a, to a god or deity. The building of the Votivkirche was also the start of the construction of the Ringstraße, which we already talked about in episode 43, the 
Dagmar Furich episode. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, okay. You know, shit is going to go down if an attempted assassination is called a minor tragedy. <laughs> right. <laughs> But at first, romance. Because shortly after this incident, Archduchess Sophie decided that it was time for the 23-year-old emperor to marry. And she didn't have to look for long, nor did she have to look far, as she decided that her son should marry his cousin, Duchess Helene of Bavaria. She was the daughter of Sophie's sister Ludovica, so Sophie sat down and she wrote to her sister, informing her of her plans. And I think we can assume that Ludovica was super thrilled, because her daughter Helene was about to become Empress of Austria. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's exciting news. Yeah, absolutely. They decided that the families should meet in the summer of 1853 in Bad Ischl, which I mentioned before, to get Helene and Franz Josef together. Ludovica also took her second oldest daughter, Duchess Elizabeth, with her on this summer retreat. I have to add that historians cannot verify that this arrangement between Ludovica and Sophie ever took place because no such letters could be found. It might as well just be one of those myths that get interwoven with historical facts. We all know them. Yeah, it might be. But in this case, it actually, I think it seems really logical that this would happen, especially given the familial norms at the time. So I don't know. I believe it. I think so too, to be honest. I think that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. So Elizabeth was 16 years old at that time. She was born on 24th of December 1837 in Munich. So she was what we call here a Christkindl, born on the Heilige Abend. Yeah. So her father, Duke Max Josef of Bavaria, was rarely at home as he preferred to travel the world and he led what we... I think we can call it a dandy lifestyle, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. He was not very fond of his wife Ludovica, even though they somehow managed to have 10 children. So basically what happened, he only came home ever so often to procreate and then left again before the child was born. That's fun. I mean, I can think of a few people for whom that would be an ideal arrangement, so I'm not judging, but, you know, it doesn't sound like the most loving relationship. I mean, he came around because after they had been married for 50 years, he somehow accepted his wife and his <laughs> marriage. I mean... <laughs> 50 years is nothing. Men. <laughs> It sounds tough. It's, it's, I mean, I'm not judging. It's not like both of them had anything to say in who they were going to marry. Well, exactly. It's, they didn't have any choice in the matter, but they didn't have to make it. Well, maybe it was fine. Who knows? I'm not judging. So yeah, their daughter, Elizabeth, uh, she was a rather wild child, though. She didn't show a lot of interest in her studies and she preferred to ride horses or swim in the lake, which... Again, can't blame her. She just really couldn't sit still, and she wanted to spend her days outside. But she was also a very sensitive child who wrote many poems that showed a rather melancholic and later on depressive side. Thanks to her rather unconventional father, Elizabeth and her siblings enjoyed a somewhat unusual upbringing. So, for example, Elizabeth, also called Cece, uh, was taught how to do acrobatic tricks on horses, which might seem very unusual until I tell you that her father had his own circus tent <laughs> next to his palace in Munich. I think he, he, he must have been a lot of fun in your friend group. You know what I mean? Oh, God, yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And uh, he allowed her to perform her tricks in front of a paying audience. So, yeah, that would have been very unusual at that time. Mm -hmm. I, I dig it. All in all, it seems that Elizabeth was a lot like her father, Max. Uh, she loved to travel, and she always really longed to live freely and as she pleased. But unfortunately, this would cause several unhappy lives. Back to 1853, they all go to meet in Bad Ischel to actually celebrate the emperor's birthday. Okay, so we have... <laughs> <laughs> Get ready for a bunch of badly pronounced German names. Okay. Ludovica, Helena, <laughs> Sisi, Sophie, Franz Josef, and a whole bunch of other people. But these five are who we're going to focus on. As we said before, Sophie had decided that Franz Josef should marry his cousin, Helena. But guess what? He doesn't want her. The young emperor is completely smitten by his younger cousin, 16-year-old Elizabeth. And so he asks her to marry him, and she says yes, because she's 16. There's a funny quote uh, when her mother asked her if she really wants to marry the emperor. She allegedly said, you can't reject an emperor. Seriously, though? Yeah. Yeah. So the couple gets married on April 24th, 1854 in Vienna, and they have four children. In 1855, Sophie Frederica, who unfortunately dies at age two from typhoid. In 1856, Gisela, 
1858, their only son and heir to the throne, Rudolph. And last but not least, in 1868, Marie Valerie, Elizabeth's favorite child, who she called, quote, her only one, end quote. I could go into a deep dive about why Marie Valerie was her favorite, but fear not, I shan't. I would actually enjoy that. We'll talk about that later, maybe in our second part. We'll see. All right, what's next? So, okay, so Elizabeth and Franz Josef are married and everything is great. <laughs> nope. Unfortunately, all is not great because at court in Vienna, life is extremely strict. There are an abundance of rules that regulate every single step the royal family takes. They follow the so-called Spanish court ceremonial. It was introduced in the 15th century in Burgundy, and it really had um, just like rules and regulations for absolutely everything. Every little detail was planned thoroughly. What to wear when, when to get up, when to eat what, how to move, how to talk, who you could speak to, you get the idea. Now, the wild child Elizabeth, who liked to swim in lakes and do acrobatic tricks on horseback, she comes into this world. We can imagine how she must have felt. And not only did she now live in a cage of restrictions, she also had to study every day, learning languages like Hungarian. Only two weeks into their marriage, Elizabeth wrote a poem, quote, I awoke in a dungeon with shackles on my hand. My desire grows stronger. Freedom you have turned away, end quote. That's not good. No, I mean... That doesn't sound good. Now, there are a lot of myths that surround Cece. One is that her mother-in-law, Sophie, was actually a horrible monster-in-law. And that Elizabeth had to fight for the right to raise her children by herself, as Sophie took them away from her and wanted them to be raised by nannies. And actually, it seems that this is in fact not true. So Sophie loved her son and did everything for him. I mean, this woman gave up the chance to be Empress of Austria for her son. Seriously. And Franz Josef loved Elizabeth. She made him happy. So Sophie was happy. She did in fact allow her to raise the children by herself. But when Sophie Frederike died at age two, which by the way happened on a journey to Hungary... Elizabeth was so shocked that she handed her children over to Sophie to be raised without her. I think the sudden death of her firstborn child was the straw that finally broke the camel's back, or the camel's toe as I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> and she withdrew further and further from her husband. She suffered from depression and in 1860 she was diagnosed with a lung disease. And the doctors actually recommended to travel to Madeira to enjoy a more suitable climate to cure her cough. And this is what kicked off her travel through Europe, Anatolia, uh, North Africa. And she mostly traveled on her yacht, uh, Miramar. Fun fact, Empress Elizabeth even had a tattoo. When she was 55 years old, she went to a Greek sailor's tavern and she got an anchor tattooed on her shoulder to symbolize her love for the ocean. I love it. And Franz Josef was not amused about that. <laughs> <laughs> she fell in love with the Greek island Corfu, where she had her castle, the Achilleion, built. She visited the excavations in Troy, and she traveled more and more often to her beloved Hungary. So Elizabeth, very much like her father, was rarely ever in Vienna. And when she was at court, she withdrew to her apartments, exercising relentlessly and going through all kinds of beauty treatments. For example, she drank meat juice every day. Uh, her hair that almost reached her knees had to be washed with egg yolk and cognac every three weeks so i bet it smelled just lovely <laughs> and washing it was a procedure that took the whole day i mean ugh, I, i don't even want to think about it no she barely ate was constantly on some kind of weird diet like a, a milk diet or an egg white diet or an orange diet she did weigh herself three times a day and had exercise equipment installed in her rooms and if you ever visit the hofburg you can still see it it's still there Mm, so in addition to the other issues she was dealing with, it sounds like she might have also been trying to cope with anorexia nervosa as well. I think that is pretty much accepted fact by historians nowadays. Yeah, yeah, that's sad. Sometimes she would meet up with her husband in Switzerland or in France at the Côte d'Azur. Franz Josef, still loved his wife very much. I'm sure he must have missed her a lot. But Elizabeth, she had a little bit of mercy on him. She was very progressive because she not only allowed, but right out supported the emperor's affair with an actress called Katharina Schrat. You know, that he wouldn't feel so lonely back home in Vienna. 
he even bought the actress a mansion close to Schönbrunn Castle and visited her almost daily and in letters he called her his, quote, dear good friend, end quote. And their relationship lasted from 1885 until the emperor's death in 1916. I think I read somewhere that they had broken off for a year over some kind of disagreement in 1900. Katharina was not the only mistress in Franz Josef's long life and it is... Even speculated, and I think it is rather true, that he infected his wife Elizabeth with syphilis. Oh boy, our old friend syphilis. Yeah, so... Okay, so Elizabeth traveled around like she was running from the devil himself, or, you know, trying to outrun grief, depression, and other than untreatable mental health issues with her yacht. Let's be honest, uh, probably wouldn't help, but I'm just going to go ahead and say I'd be willing to give it a go. Yeah, I think everything's better on a yacht. So anyhow, I mean, I don't know. I've never actually been on a yacht, but I can imagine. In any case, uh, Franz Josef stayed at the Viennese court, ruling the huge country and keeping himself busy with Katerina. But what about the kids? Doesn't anybody think of the children? <laughs> well, the answer to that is no, not really. <laughs> this bit is sad because the three children just really rarely ever saw their mother and had almost no relationship with her. You kind of get the feeling that the empress, she maybe sort of disliked children. For example, she called Gisela a scrawny sod in her poems. I think that's so horrible. Well, I was so shocked when I read that. It's if you call somebody a sow in German, it's it's really bad. It's bad. It's really Oh, okay. That's not nice then. And her <laughs> grandchildren were referred as piglets. Yeah, that's pretty bad, I guess. It would be bad then at that time to refer to children as piglets then. All right. So she almost never attended any family gatherings. She just wasn't there when her parents died or most of her grandchildren were born. And look, it's also possible that the death of her first child was just so traumatic that she just sort of detached from, from loving the people she would have loved the most. I'm absolutely sure that's part of it. But I think the whole thing is so much more complex. No, I agree. So it's... Yeah, it's incredibly complex. Absolutely. So Elizabeth only took interest in Marie Valerie, but she too started to resent her mother. Uh, I think all of the children suffered as a result of their mother's negligence, but Crown Prince Rudolf might have suffered the most. Rudolf was born on August 21st, 1858, as the third child and only son of the royal couple. He was a very sensitive child, but was forced to undergo a strict military education starting from age six. In order to prepare for his role as future emperor of Austria-Hungary, he had to become a good soldier, an enthusiastic hunter, and a faithful Catholic. His military tutor had him do drill exercises in the rain and icy weather, and he would often wake him up in the middle of the night with the sound of gunshots, and at times he would take him into the woods and abandon him there. Which, I mean, obviously that must have scared the young child and caused plenty of childhood trauma. I just, can I just say that the more I learn about German and Austrian history, the more I realize how right, Johanna, you really were. You guys are the best at traumatizing children into obedience. Yeah, we're really good. Yeah, you've really nailed it. So, <laughs> yeah. So by this time, Empress Elizabeth actually did take responsibility for one of her children, and she put an end to this terrifying education. From now on, the young Rudolf was studying natural sciences. He became an enthusiastic ornithologist. He loved to draw birds and other animals. He was not too interested in reading, writing, and learning languages, but he did receive the best possible and rather liberal education at the time. He even wanted to study at the university, but the emperor denied him this wish. But at least he did receive an honorary title from the Viennese University at one point. So, Rudolf ended up turning into a well-educated man who was very very interested in politics, and who had very liberal views. He sympathized with the Hungarians in their longing for an independent state. Obviously, this was nothing his father supported, and Rudolf, who's idealistic and sometimes a bit naive politics, stood in opposition to his family's ideas. He was forced to lead a double life, writing liberal articles using a fake name. When Rudolf was in his early 20s, it was time for him to get married, and a wife was soon found, and the chosen one was the six-year-younger princess Stephanie of Belgium. I think she was a second cousin of Franz Josef. Or something like that. Her father, King Leopold II of Belgium, was considered one of the richest people of his time. And one of the reasons of his wealth was the exploitation of his colonies in the Congo Free State where natural rubber was collected and exported. 
By the way, this colony was the private colony of King Leopold and is therefore considered to be the biggest private estate ever acquired by a single man. I have to say the word acquired seems like... Um way to normalizing for what yeah. was happening in Congo because atrocious labor politics as well as epidemic diseases and famine caused the death of approximately 10 million people. It's a horrifying crime against humanity and I have the feeling it's rarely ever talked about. Yeah, far, far too rarely. So in 1881, the 23-year-old Rudolf marries the 17-year-old Stephanie. It was another unhappy marriage in the Habsburg family, even though the couple led a harmonic life in the beginning and a daughter was born in 1883. She would be their only child. Stephanie, rather tall, was considered unattractive and with a very boring personality. And especially her mother-in-law, Elizabeth, despised her, calling her, quote-unquote, ugly camel, behind her back. That's lovely. It sounds like something my mother-in-law would say, though. I will never understand that. <laughs> yeah, I will never understand that. Stephanie also had very, very conservative worldviews, which isolated Rudolf even more. He spent more and more time away from his wife, consuming alcohol and drugs in the company of constantly changing female acquaintances. And I think it comes as no surprise to any of us that he too infected his wife with a venereal disease. Of course. Stephanie, now infertile and therefore not able to give the dynasty a male heir to the throne, was heartbroken and the relationship had reached a breaking point and I think they even considered a separation. Yeah, can we just have just a just a quick moment of quiet rage for all the royal women who were either made infertile by their diseased husbands or made out to be failures when they didn't produce a male heir when the sex of a baby is determined by the father's sperm. So, sorry, as you were. It's so stupid, but well. It really is. It just, yeah, it's one of the things you just see over and over again in history, though, isn't it? It's like, yeah. Yeah, she didn't produce a male heir. Well, that's actually on you, Dad. <laughs> You're the one. <laughs> that's that's completely decided by the sperm, not the egg. And yeah, it's... Anyway, sorry. Rant over. So just like his father, Rudolf II had a woman in his life with whom he had an affair that lasted several years, and her name was Mitzi Kasper. And she was um, a so-called soubrette. I think you can describe a soubrette as a very expensive, very luxurious sex worker, yeah, that makes sense. I imagine the sex worker industry is like sort of like any other client relationship, right? Ranging from very affordable to insanely expensive. So yeah, that makes sense. So Rudolf even bought her a four-story townhouse in the fourth district here in Vienna. I think the house is still there. I, I'm not sure. Of course, he also gifted his young mistress jewels, money, and I'm sure at least one quality carpet. Uh, one would hope at least one. <laughs> Mitzi will eventually die in 1907 from spinal stenosis, a late symptom of syphilis. Yeah, you'll remember from the John List episode, we talked a lot about how syphilis can cause brain damage, but it can also go into the spine, which also terrible. Okay, so back to our story. Now we have this sensitive man who has a bad relationship with his mother, his father, and his wife. He did at least have a good relationship with his sister Gisela, so that's one good thing. But he feels isolated, misunderstood. He has very different political views from the rest of the ruling family. What could possibly go wrong? Well, it's no surprise that Rudolf grew more and more gloomy. Today, of course, we would say that he suffered from severe depression. But back then, we all know it, that people were just not properly diagnosed when it came to mental health issues, and there really wasn't much in the way of treatment available. Ultimately, he asked Mitzi to commit suicide with him, and she refused. She even went to the police reporting this incident, but they just ignored her statement. On January 26, Rudolph has one last audience with his father. The meeting ends in another fight between the two of them. On the next day, on January 27, 1889, Mitzi and Rudolph did spend their last night together. It was the last time they would see each other, and when he leaves, he makes the sign of the cross on her forehead. Because the following day, on the 28th of January, Rudolf went on a trip that would ultimately cost him his life, and he didn't go alone. With him was the 17-year-old Baroness Mary Alexandrine Vectra. Now, I know you listeners will ask, who is Mary, and how many more names are you going to throw at us? <laughs> <laughs> so many more. So many. Mary was born on 19th March 1871 as the third of four children to the diplomat Baron Albin von Vetschera and his Greek wife Helene Baltasi. 
And like many girls at the time, the young Mary had been raving about Rudolf. I mean, obviously he was the young prince. And they finally meet at a horse race in 1888. They were actually introduced by Countess Marie Larisch, who was not only a cousin of Rudolf, but had also a secret affair with Mary's father. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course she did. And after this meeting, Mary was even more obsessed with Prince Rudolf. She was talking about him constantly and she did cut out his photos of, you know, every newspaper she could get her hands on. Typical teenage infatuation, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. Her mom, though, she was super annoyed with Mary's behavior. And she took her on a trip to England to get her mind off the prince. But to no avail, because Mary and Rudolf exchanged letters. And after he returned to Vienna, they had their first private meeting in November of 1888. And during their affair, he apparently also gifted her a ring with the inscription I-L-V-B-I-D-T, which means we're really good in this. I was just going to say your abbreviations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Way before the cell phones, we already did that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. So it means in Liebe verbunden bis in den Tod, which translates to bound through love till death. Ah. And he also gifted her a chain with a locket that contained a drop of his blood on a piece of linen. That's much classier than a vial. <laughs> it is believed that in total Rudolf and Mary met around 20 times before the 28th of January 1889. On this day, after Rudolf had left Mitzikasper, Rudolf traveled to his hunting chateau in Meierling, around 40 kilometers or 25 miles southwest of Vienna. He arrives there around 3.30 p.m. and is joined one hour later by Mary Vetscherer. So the next day, 29th of January, everything seemed normal. Rudolf received two acquaintances, that's the Count Hoyos and the Prince of Coburg, who he had invited to go on a hunt with him. The three of them had breakfast together, but then Rudolf excused himself, claiming he was unable to attend the hunt because of a cold. Very much like I have right now, if you can hear in my voice. And me. <laughs> yeah, sorry, everyone. It's the season. <laughs> it is. So in the evening of the same day, Rudolf is expected to attend a family dinner in the Hofburg in Vienna. This is supposed to be the engagement dinner of Rudolf's sister Marie Valerie to the Archduke Franz Salvator of Austria Toscana. But not only was it the engagement dinner, it was also supposed to be the evening when Franz Josef wanted to make peace with his son. Rudolf doesn't attend the dinner, he stays in Meierling and has dinner alone with Count Hoyos. Around 9pm he tells his adjutant to have the carriage ready the next morning and he also sends out two invites for 31st of January. He then wishes everyone good night and he retires to his room. This whole time neither one of his guests have any idea that Mary Vetscher is also in the castle. Oh, the intrigue. All right. So in the meantime, back in Vienna, Mary's family are completely out of their minds with fear when Mary does not return home after running errands on the 28th of January. Finally, <laughs> Countess Larisch admits that Mary ran off to Meierling to meet up with the crown prince. The police are informed and some of Mary's uncles take matters into their own hands and they begin to make their way to Meierling. The next morning on the 30th of January, 1889, a servant tries to wake up the the prince at 7.30 a.m. as ordered. Breakfast and carriage are both ready as instructed, but the doors to his rooms are locked. The servant calls for Count Hoyos, and it is decided that the door should be broken down, which happens shortly after 8 a.m. Once the door is broken down, they find Mary and Rudolph both on the bed, dead. I just want to let you know, there's also another version of these events. It says that around 7.30 a.m., Rudolf himself came out of his room, fully dressed, demanding his breakfast and the horse carriage. He then returned to his rooms, locked the door, and two gunshots were heard. That sounds an awful lot like the Harris story, doesn't it? Clara and Henry. Yeah. Was it Henry Harris? Anyway, we don't think this is the most truthful version, do we? But we want them to know that this account also exists out there. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Count Hoyos immediately returns to Vienna to deliver the terrible news himself. He reports to Franz Josef that the crown prince is dead and that he has been poisoned by Mary. Then there's talk about heart failure or maybe a possible stroke. Court doctors are sent to Meierling to examine the bodies. They find that Mary died from a close-range gunshot to the head and state that suicide was the cause of death. But Mary was right-handed, and the bullet hit her head on the left temple, exiting behind her right ear. So it's pretty much universally accepted nowadays that Rudolf did in fact shoot Mary before taking his own life, probably several hours later. The royal family, however, never acknowledged this fact, which is not really too surprising, is it? 
No, not at all. And I think there are several reasons why they immediately ruled Mary's death a suicide. First of all, of course, the royal family could not be associated with such a scandal. And second of all, by stating that it was suicide and not assisted suicide or murder, Mary's body could be buried as soon as possible, you know, to prevent more rumors from spreading. Mm -hmm. Mary's uncles, when they arrive at Meierling, they have to identify the body and they also have to agree to the cause of death on the death certificate. Brace yourself, because mm. then they place the body in the carriage, upright sitting, just as if she were alive, and they take her to Heiligenkreuz. It's just so awful. It gets worse. So there, only two days after the murder-suicide, Mary was buried at the cemetery, her parents her parents were not allowed to see their daughter's body before the funeral and they were even prevented from visiting the grave until March of 1889. I can't even imagine. It's so bad. The crown prince's body was brought to Vienna. His funeral takes place on 5th of February and thousands are in the streets and they're paying their last respects. His sarcophagus rests in the Kapuzinergruft. The Kapuzinergruft is the burial crypt of the Habsburg family since 1633 and in total 149 Habsburger have their last resting place there, including 12 emperors and 19 empresses. But... Interesting fact, another another fun fact. Most of the bodies were buried without their hearts and inner organs. Most of the hearts were buried separately in the so-called heart crypt in the Augustinerkirche, which is, by the way, also the place where Josef Weinwurm from our episode 43 attacked an American student and left her for dead. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Can we talk really quickly about the hearts, though? Yes. <laughs> so the Habsburger were not the only dynasty to practice this kind of burial. Many European emperors were laid to rest this way. And of course, it looks like they might have adopted it from the ancient Egyptians. So most of the hearts are buried in the Augustinerkirche. If you hear tippy taps in the back, that's Cem and Lila. I love them. But for example, Franz Josef, he was absolutely against this. And neither his heart nor his organs were removed after his death. Mm, that's fascinating to me. All right, so the hunting chateau in Meierling was bought by Franz Josef soon after, and he transformed it into a Carmelite convent. And to this day, the nuns are still praying for Crown Prince Rudolf because nuns. They have to. That's what, when uh, Franz Josef gifted them the castle, they were ordered oh. to pray for, the, for Rudolf for eternity. I mean, right. Well, if he was Catholic, then... No heaven for him. Yeah, that's why they ruled it a suicide because of a mental health issue. Like, they basically said he was insane. Did that make a difference at that time? Um, He was the crown prince. It did make a lot of difference. Right, yeah. Because I don't think it made a difference for no people who weren't. If you were a Catholic, you wouldn't be allowed yeah. to be buried in concert. You know, it, it's different rules for everyone, isn't there? That's why Franz Josef was so adamant about having nuns pray for his son forever. That makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. Okay. So as for Mary, even after her funeral, her body did not find peace. In April of 1945, her crypt was plundered by Soviet soldiers, and the crypt was only repaired superficially, until 1959, when Mary's remains were placed in a new tin casket. And then, on the 8th of July, 1991, Mary's remains were stolen. The furniture retailer... Helmut Flatzelsteiner, with the help of two friends, opened the crypt and took the tin coffin, leaving only the sarcophagus behind. The fuck? Who are these people? He'd <laughs> taken the body out of curiosity and interest in the case, and because he wanted the head wounds to be examined. At least that's what he says. Seriously, who are these people? In 1993, Mary was again placed to rest in Heiligenkreuz, where she remains hopefully undisturbed until this day. My God, that woman, her body was like what happened to Evita. It's... Yeah. I don't understand the body anyway. Fine. It was it was a whole thing. I remember I was um, 11, 12 when that happened. It was all over the news. It's crazy. It's and this, this guy who took her, he's the weirdest dude like i saw interviews with him did anything even happen though he like stole her no he just had to pay a fine no mm -hmm. ah normally i think the, he could have gone to jail but i don't know why they didn't and he was so horrible when he talked about opening the the coffin and he said that she stank like the devil what did you expect, dude? Is that how you need to talk about... No. I mean, you steal a coffin from a grave that was there for over a hundred years. So Yeah, that's... Ugh. He's gross. He's a creep. Yep, total creep. We don't like him at all. 
<laughs> One last thing. In 2012, Mary's suicide notes were found, uh, three in total to her mother, her brother and her sister. The words of the letters had been known for a while because her mother had noted them down, but the letters themselves were believed to be lost. To her mother, Mary wrote, quote, Dear mother, Forgive me what I have done, I could not withstand love. In accordance with his wishes, I want to be buried beside him in Island Cemetery. I am happier in death than I was in life. Yours, Mary. End quote. And the one to her brother reads, quote, Dear Fairy, I'm sorry that I couldn't see you anymore. Farewell. I will now watch over you from the other world because I love you very much. Your faithful sister, Mary. End quote. And the last one to her sister reads, quote, My dear Hannah, a few hours before my death, I want to tell you adieu. We both walk blissfully into the unknown afterworld. Remember me now and then. Be happy and only marry for love. I couldn't. And as I couldn't resist love, I now go with him. End quote. So how true do you think these letters are? Like, do you think they're factual? Uh, you mean true in the sense of, did you mean it or true in the sense of, are they even real? Both, I guess. Okay. Are they even real? They are definitely real. Definitely. Okay. Did she mean it, though? I think she was a typical hormonal teenager. I don't want to sound dismissive when I say hormonal teenager, but I think we've all been there. Oh, God, yeah. Yep. She thought she had found that one true love. Remember those days yeah. when every everybody was your one true love? Yep. She knew that there was just no way for them to be together. And I'm sure she thought that he really loved her too. I think Rudolf just really didn't want to go out alone. Yeah. And I think she was like an easy target for him. That's why I have a bit of a problem with calling the tragedy of Meierling a double suicide. It's always referred to in Austria as double suicide. She probably really, really wanted to die with him, but she didn't know any better. She was a young girl who thought she was in love and he shot her. Yeah. Even if she said shoot me. I I just have a problem calling that a double suicide. I agree completely. I, I agree completely. She was, well, first of all, he killed her. She didn't take her own life. Yeah. And she was too young, really, to give any kind of consent. So yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. All right. And so we also had a letter that Rudolph left for his wife, uh, Stephanie, and it reads, quote, Dear Stephanie, you are now rid of my presence and annoyance. Be happy in your own way. Take care of the poor wee one. She is all that remains of me. To all acquaintances, especially Bombels, Spindler, Latour, Wovo, Gisela, Leopold, etc., etc., say my last greetings. I go quietly to my death, which alone can save my good name. I embrace you affectionately, your loving Rudolph. End quote. <sighs> you are now rid of my presence and annoyance. I find these thoughts really sad, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, this whole thing, it's just pretty awful. Yeah. Speaking of Stephanie, who was 25 at the time, she was blamed by the royal family, especially, of course, Empress Elizabeth, for Rudolf's death, as they thought she didn't give him a loving and stable enough home. She started to avoid the Viennese court, traveled more. Later, her father-in-law, Franz Josef, tried to marry her off to the next heir to the throne, Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> but Stephanie fell in love with a Hungarian count and married him in 1900, renouncing her title of crown prince's widow and therefore pretty much turning her back on the Habsburg family. But also with her father, because the king of Belgium, he didn't approve of this relationship. The custody of her daughter, Elisabeth Marie, went to Emperor Franz Josef, and he called her his favorite grandchild. I love how these people tell their children and grandchildren who's their favorite and who they hate the most. It's just like right? a whole different level. Who's the favorite? And also, I just feel really bad for Stephanie. Yeah. She's made out to be such a problem and yeah. But she found just... a little bit of happiness at least. Yeah. So Elizabeth Marie, she later on married for love against the wishes of her grandfather who wanted to marry off to the German crown prince Wilhelm. But Elizabeth Marie didn't cave and so finally was allowed to marry the man she loved, which was Prince Otto zu Windischgrätz. I know that you were all now thinking she was marrying a carpenter or something like that. But no, not even a normal prince was good enough for her. <laughs> the marriage was not a happy one, though. Both Elizabeth as well as her husband had several affairs. And it is rumored that Elizabeth even shot at one of her husband's mistresses, injuring her severely. In 1924, the couple divorced. In 1921, she had met her later second husband, a politician of the Social Democratic Party. And Elizabeth, the granddaughter of Franz Josef, herself 
joined the party in 1925, and her commitment and dedication to the labor movement earned her the nickname the Red Archduchess. And she died in 1963 at age 79. And I think this is a pretty good place for us to wrap it up for today. I hope you join us next week when we talk about the two other tragedies, the murder of Franz Josef's wife and the assassination of the heir to the throne. Yeah, this story just keeps getting crazier and crazier. So stay tuned for part two. You're going to love it. All right. Something good. My something good this week is all these insanely rich people in this story has reminded me that I finally got around to watching Crazy Rich Asians and I absolutely loved it. I just adore Aquafina. I think she's amazing. We also got, uh, I don't know if you remember, we covered the murder of Lauren Dunn Astley a while ago now, and uh, we were able to make a small donation to her memorial fund, and we we just got the nicest acknowledgement with notes from her parents, so that was unexpected and just deeply touched by that. We've posted a photo of that in the episode photo album, as well as a link in case you want to donate to that uh, very worthy cause as well. What about you? My something good. Let's see. Oh, okay. Since we started the podcast, I think it's the same for you. I rarely ever read books anymore that don't have anything to do with research for our episodes. Mm. And one of my 2020 things was that I wanted to find some time for reading again. And so I'm reading now every night again before falling asleep, even if it's only, you know, a couple of pages that yep. I can get through before I fall asleep. So tonight I want to start with the book called So Long Marian, A Love Story by Kari Hestama. And it's about Leonard Cohen's relationship with Marian Elan. Because for months now, I'm extremely obsessed with the song So Long Marian. I keep playing it on repeat. It's so good. My husband was already annoyed with me and he's not even home most of the time. <laughs> I don't know if any of you are watching the show This Is Us. It's so good. I love that show. It's I, I didn't want to watch it for a long time because I thought it's just cheesy romantic, but it's a really good show. And they had an episode where this song was, it kind of played an important role. And I hadn't heard this song in years until I saw this episode. So now I can't get enough of it. And I will let you all know how I like the book. Yeah, please do. I haven't watched This Is Us yet. It's on our long, long list of things we need to watch. But You're gonna love it, but keep tissues, tissues. ready. Yeah, yeah, that's what everyone says. It's mm -hmm. Yeah. That's partly why I don't watch it. Like, I do enough crying, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I know other people will understand what I'm saying, but it's like, I cry enough, I don't, I'm not looking for things to make me cry more. For me, it's the exact opposite. I barely ever cry, so yeah. I super enjoy, and I easily cry for yeah. movies and TV yeah. shows and books. <laughs> me too. All the time. All the time. All right. Well, Hellions, thanks so much for listening. If you want to help support our podcast, we would really love it if you would rate and or review us, especially on iTunes that helps other people find us, or go ahead and share our episodes with your friends. You can also check out our merch store. The link is teespring.com backslash stores backslash fresh dash hell dash podcast. Uh, there's links, of course, on our uh, website and in our Facebook group. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or better, join our closed Facebook group. We really, really, really love to hear from you. Absolutely. This week especially, we are thinking of our Aussie Hellions. It, things there are unbelievably bad, and I hope you all know that we are uh, thinking of you. You are in our thoughts and prayers, and uh, we really hope that things get sorted out there soon. And so, as always, we say that if you are going through hell... Keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.